podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Shut up and sit down. Dr. Harold Shipman was one of Britain's most prolific serial killers. As a respected GP, Shipman presented himself as a pillar of the community. But between 1971 and 1998, Shipman killed mostly elderly female patients by injecting them with diamorphine, a pharmaceutical heroin. He watched his victims die and then carried on as if nothing had happened. Join us as we take a trip into the dark and depraved world of the serial killer files. guys i'm sai and we are ace podcast nation welcome to our new series the serial killer files this is the second episode in our brand new series on serial killers in this series we will select a different killer each episode and discuss the evidence the crimes committed and everything we can find on these heinous crimes needless to say due to the nature of the content it is not suitable for under 18s or anyone of a service, uh, sensitive or nervous disposition. Uh, we'll always try and discuss these crimes with tact and respect for the victims, as it is important to note that this series is true crime and it affected real people, real families and real communities. You can find all of our podcasts and series on our YouTube channel in video format, as well as audio download on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Acast, Pocket Casts, and podcast.co. Uh, during these shows, you will find interviews, podcasts, and content on a variety of subjects. We have shows on mental health, football, films, TV, wrestling, music, conspiracy theories, and more. Plus, you will now find our true crime series as well. Uh, today's episode is our second in our series on serial killers, and it's one that I remember when I was younger, and it really uh, caught my attention as it involved a doctor. So uh, you could imagine people were very worried when they were going to the doctors and it was in the news. It was certainly one which took the UK uh, by storm in the news and I would think worldwide as well. It's uh, today's episodes on Dr. Harold Shipman. To join me as we take a trip into the depraved and scary but brutal world of serial killers uh, I'm very pleased to welcome my co-host from the Conspiracy Theory, Conspiracy Theory series, uh, Reese. Thanks for joining me, mate. Hi, mate. Good to be back again. 
Indeed, feels like we've recorded loads in the last couple of days. So we did like Friday, Sunday. No, we didn't do Friday. I, I lose track of the days, mate. It's, oh, no, mate. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. So yeah, do you remember like when Harold Shipman when it all came out and stuff and yeah. Because it was, uh, that's one, like a lot of the serial killers, which we will end up discussing over the different episodes, they're like before we before our time. But like this one sort of came to a head, like when we were, what, you're trying to look now? So like his last, his last killing was like 1998. So yeah. Well, yeah, he I got arrested like, in the September, didn't he? Yeah, I think so. So, like, yeah, 98, I was what, it was, like, 16, I think. Oh, you know? 37. I'm, I'm 41 this Saturday, mate. Jesus Christ. Thanks. <laughs> that, that makes me feel a bit, you know, young and sprightly now. Yeah, but you don't look it, all right? Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Grey hairs everywhere. They just, uh, luckily, though, I've still got my hair, which is the, you know, I cling oh, to that of the pushing bars. me, mate. I haven't got that either. <laughs> I um Yeah, I'm not gonna tell the story about why I got long hair again. But anyway, it's grey and it's long and I'm embracing it while I can still do it. Because it's my my hairline's getting further and further back every year. I know, mate, soon you're gonna be brushing your ass. I know no. I'm gonna just have like a mullet just at the back. Just one of those guys who like can over. Yeah. Just can't come, uh, can't come to terms with it, and just <laughs> like clinging on to the last few strands of long hair. Yeah, but there we go. So Harold Shipman, uh, born January forty-six, was a general practitioner. So for people in UK, he was a, a GP. Uh, for anyone in US and stuff, he's basically like a family doctor who you Welcome. go to see. Yeah, local, I mean, uh, so you go and see for colds and coughs and all this uh, type of jazz. But he was one of the most prolific serial killers in history, let alone British history. He was one of the most prolific everywhere. Uh, he was found guilty in January 2000 uh, of 15 patients' murders who were under his care, and he was sentenced to life in prison. But that's the end of the story. There was a two-year-long investigation into his death before uh, they were sort of took him to court. The inquiry, uh, the uh, or the investigation, identified two hundred and eighteen victims uh, and estimated his total victim in altogether was two hundred and fifty, um, and about eighty percent of them were elderly women. Uh, his youngest victim was 41, um, but they think that he could have killed patients as young as four, but they weren't able to prove it. Um, so, like, a lot of the, you know, his his victim victimology was pretty much the same. It was elderly people, generally elderly women, like I say, it was 80%. Um, and I think, really, that's why he got away with it for so long was because these people were so old, like they were old and they were ill anyway, that he, that's how he was able to disguise his 
killing them and stuff. Um, yeah, so I obviously... Say, when... No one would have really, like, at that time, even thought someone was capable of doing them things. You know, we haven't had a serial killer pretty much since Jack the Ripper. There was that guy, wasn't there, who was killing prostitutes a few, few years back. Oh, yeah, um... His name was. Oh, I can't remember his name now, but yeah. We'll get to him, though, anyway, eventually. I'm sure. But, yeah, and I think it's it's a weird one, because when I was watching, I watched a documentary on him the other day, and actually how he was caught was something really coincidental, how they first got on to him, whereby he killed a lady in her home, um, and she always sat in her chair by the window, and then whenever someone came to a house, by the time they got to the door, she had got up and opened the door for him. So she was waiting for him. And when he killed her, he put her in a different chair. And her family and the neighbours sort of thought, well, she wouldn't sit there because she wanted to. She always faced the window and she always sat in her chair. And like anyone who's, you know, got grandparents, they always sit in the same chairs, don't they? They, they got their very... We've like, all uh, got our own space, haven't we? Yeah, of course, yeah. Definitely, but, but like grandparents, it's law. That's their seat. Oh yeah, you, you don't get to sit there ever, do you? And uh, yeah, it's, it's a strange one because, well, let's get into it. So his early life, uh, he was born in a council estate. Second, he had uh, he was the second of three children. Uh, his dad was a lorry driver. His, Mum was, you know, they were working like working class parents. They were devout Methodists. Um, you know, he was a good rugby player, uh, playing in some youth leagues and stuff. So, like, he had. It wasn't like you know when we talked about um, Dharma. <coughs> you know, he, like he was an alcoholic by the time he was fourteen, and he had quite a messed up childhood. And his parents split up, but he had like a weird relationship with his mother and his grandparents and his dad you know this this guy shipman had a very very normal upbringing in you know whatever normal is you know these days but like you know he's just a working class family religious um there didn't seem to be any uh warning signs when he was younger um he did very well at school. He excelled as a like a sportsman. Did running. He was vice captain of the athletics team. But he was particularly close to his mother. Uh, she died of lung cancer when he was seventeen. Um, and this that seems to be where something I don't know what you how you term it. Either something went wrong in his brain, or something something happened where he changed there because, um, and obviously a lot of the people he killed were of his sort of mother's age or older. Um, Some of them had cancer as well. Um, Her death came in a manner which was very similar to what, you know, would become his, uh, what's the the term, modus operandi. How do you like that for a a word? That is M.A. Yeah. Uh, M.O., innit? M.O., sorry. Yeah. Tell you're tired. So, like, she was in the latter stages of a disease, and she was administered morphine at home by the doctors, which he witnessed this, and because he, he was close to her, he was with her a lot. 
Um, and like I say, that is, seems to be where he developed his, well, even if he didn't, that's not where something went pop in his brain and he became a killer. That's where he got his his modus operandi from. That's where he developed the fascination with it. Um, so then on the 5th of November, 66, he married, got married to Primrose and they had four children together. Um, he studied medicine, did all that type of job. Uh, he, in 1974, he took his first position as a GP in uh, Todd, Todd Morden in West Yorkshire. But the following year, he was caught forging prescriptions of pethidine, which they used to give. I think, I don't know if they still do. They give to people in labour, women in labour, uh, pethidine. Um, but he was uh, over he was over prescribing it for patients and forging prescriptions because he had become addicted to it through a, he had an injury and then he was, uh, and this is, this is whereby the problems begin is he became an addict and he was forging the prescriptions, but he wasn't struck off. So at that time that now, if you did that now, you'd get struck off straight away. You wouldn't yeah. be able to be a doctor anymore. But at the time, because he he went to drug rehab and stuff, he was fined six hundred pounds, which was a lot, you know, in seventy nine seventy four was a lot of money. Um, and he had briefly attended drug rehab, um, and then he went to work in Manchester in Hyde uh, a couple of years later. So, you know, whilst his uh, initial upbringing was relatively you know, run of the mill. Things seem to have changed from that sort of age. Seventeen, his mum died. The way she died, the way she was, like the treatment she was having, towards the end of her life, and then obviously he became an addict himself. Which I think, as we talk about different serial killers, addiction seems to be a big part of it. And even if they're not addicted to to, to drugs or alcohol, they are addicted to the killing which is why they are unable to stop um which is you know that's an interesting facet to it i think it's, it's stranger as shit than though isn't it because there's no there's absolutely no rhyme or reason whatsoever because even as a sense of power it, in, in the nicest way possible they're all most of them were very elderly towards the end of their life anyway there's no sense of power there, even. It's mm. it's it's always baffled me, Shipman, because why, for what? Yeah, it's not like um, like Dharma, where he had that uh, he wanted that power over him, didn't he? When yeah, they were I mean, unconscious, it was his sexual urges, basically. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Shipman, it was uh, until the one person. It wasn't even for money or anything. There was the one when he faked the will, wasn't there, or tried to. Mm. Yeah, and that's where it sort of started to uh, unravel yeah. a bit. But so, uh, other than that, nothing whatsoever. Yeah, there didn't seem to be like a like a sexual thing. Um, no, seem... no playing the caring doctor, you know, the Dexter type. There's, there's nothing. No, and I mean, if, by all accounts, he had quite an abrupt uh, manner with his patients as well he wasn't um you know he didn't have that facade that we 
you know, we'll know we've talked about with uh Dharma and we'll probably, you know, when we get to people like Button Bundy and you know, who were yeah, able to sort of charm charm no, no, not at all. He was abrupt, quite cold. Um so yeah, you're right, it is a weird one because there's not like a but again not like a reason. The time this went on, everyone trusted their doctor. Yeah. And it does seem like it was his mother's passing which has had that profound um like influence on him killing because of the type of people he was killing, the way he was killing them. But there's like don't get me wrong, you know, anyone losing a parent young, like I lost my father at age sixteen. But like and so I know what a you know, an impact it can have on you as a person and going on through your life but in like i don't know maybe maybe it's, i can't understand it so it's difficult to like try and understand it because i wouldn't do the things that he you know did so i can't really understand his sort of thinking but you know maybe he did just break and he couldn't cope with the the death of his mum so his way of getting control was what he felt in control by killing those women because he was in charge of, you know, whether they lived or died. Do you think died. it was that or to make the family suffer and be in control of that? Yeah, so maybe, yeah, suffering. there's that aspect too. So, like, he wanted other people to feel like he felt when he lost his mother. And he you, you know what it's like, like when we feel down, ill, things like that. We want sympathy. We want people to empathise with us. Yeah. And in his deranged fucking mind, maybe that's why. Yeah, I don't know. So when he went to hide, he um, he was part of a like a practice there for a couple of years, and then he started his own practice uh, a couple of years later. Where uh, where was it? I'm trying to find it. Well, it was a couple of years later. He, uh, oh yeah, Market Street, 1993. He became a respected member of the community, and he was started his own uh, practice where you know just him. Uh, he was even interviewed in 1983 on a Granada documentary. Uh, you know, do you remember World in Action on ITV? Yeah. He was interviewed on that about how mentally ill people should be treated within the community. Um, and a year after his conviction, they rebroadcast his interview with Trevor McDonald. But I mean, that shows in itself that, you know, as part of it, he was still, he wasn't, high, you know, he was cold and all that, but he was, he was also a big member of the community when he was in Manchester. Yeah. Um, and he was, sounds like quite keen on trying to help people but where i don't it's difficult isn't it to understand the difference between he wanted he obviously he was helping people where he went or he talked about helping people on that documentary but then on the other hand he was going to go on to kill a load of people so yes uh, it's frightening mate that someone who's so trusted could unravel i don't know what the word would be you know just and get away with so much of it yeah absolutely mate so um 
I've I've just lost my I just closed my notes down, which is handy. Um, but yeah, as just while I bring them back up, the the thing was is or the thing which I remember when all this came out was the fact that everybody was affected by this. You know, even though we were on the other side, you know, we're in Wales, far away from Manchester and Yorkshire and all these places where this was going on. I remember people talking about it. It was on the news constantly, on the radio. You know, it was a huge thing. Yeah, all my men's family are from Yorkshire, so you can imagine it was a massive talking point. Oh, God, yeah, I bet. It's, um, it's, it's frightening. But it's, it's crazy. Like, look at the amount of people who he actually killed and how unknown he actually is. Yeah, I mean, I said to you the other day, didn't I? I, didn't, I can't remember who you said it on air. <laughs> when I, I interviewed um, an actress the other day, Anna Bauer, show, show coming out next week, um, and sh- we were talking about serial killers, and like we said about I said about Harold, we were doing Harold Chipman and she didn't know who it was. And she's from Australia, she is. But I mean, so that shows that even though he's one of the most prolific serial killers of all time, he isn't as well known as, you know, like your your Bundys and your Dharmas and all this. It's a weird one, definitely. Sorry, mate, my notes are not loading up, so I can't bring up the notes I made about all his crimes and deaths. Um, okay. They don't even know all his victims, do they? No, there's so many, and I think he was. He did. Did he talk much once he was arrested? In terms of, I don't like, think you know, so. Dharma. Done it off. Evidence. They've done every death certificate he signs. They're pretty much gambling it on. I think. Mm. Depending what the cause of death was. So with uh, Dr. Shipman, the, the the local undertaker noticed that his patients seemed to be dying at an unusually high rate. Um, they exhibited the same po- similar poses in death as well. They were fully clothed, usually sitting up or on a reclining sofa. Um, he was concerned enough that he went to see Dr. Shipman directly. Um, and obviously Dr. Shipman reassured him, so there was nothing to worry about. Um, and then later, another medical colleague, another doctor, Susan Booth, she had also sort of found some similarly disturbing sort of evidence, or not evidence, but like just patterns in the, the high rate of his patients who were dying in similar fashion. And she she actually contacted the police. Um, so they set up a covert investigation. Um but Shipman was cleared at that point um, because it appeared that his records were in order. There was nothing to, you know, there was nothing to investigate, which is frightening in itself that someone could yeah. kill 250 people. And at some point, the police said, no, we've looked into him. Everything's fine. So he hid behind his status as a like a caring family doctor. And I know, like we said, he was quite abrupt and cold in his his sort of bedside manner. But he was involved in the community and he was that family doctor. And obviously he was, a, you know, he was a father of four as well. So, you know, he wasn't um, completely, what's the word, like 
you know, he wasn't like a, oh, fuck, I can't think of the word. Like he wasn't ice cold to everyone, if that makes no. sense. Yeah. But when, like when he told patients or uh, so-and-so's your mother's died or whatever, he was very abrupt in the way he said it. And he upset some people with the way he said it. He wasn't caring, I suppose, would be the, you know, yeah. the right. He showed term. no empathy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he hid behind his status as the sort of family doctor. Um, but it was almost impossible to establish exactly when Shipman began killing the patients because of the way they were dying, the age they were at. And I think that was the biggest problem for the investigators. Um, and that's why they can't work out how many people he actually killed. And, of course, he denied all charges. He did nothing to assist the authorities, which meant his killing spree was only brought to an end thanks to uh, that one woman, uh, Angela Woodruff, who was the daughter of one of his victims, um, because she refused to accept the explanations given for her mother's death. Yeah, it was his last victim, wasn't it? Kathleen Grundy. Yeah, so Kathleen Grundy was um, an active 81-year-old widow she was found dead in her home on the 24th of June, 1998, uh, following an, she'd had an earlier visit from Shipman. Uh, Woodruff had, was advised by Shipman that, that an autopsy was not required, um, and Kathleen Grundy was buried with her in accordance with her daughter's wishes. But uh, Woodruff, Woodruff was, the, was a solicitor, um, so she had also handled her mother's affairs. Um, so she was really surprised when she discovered that another will existed, which left the bulk of her mother's estate to Dr. Shipman. So Woodruff was convinced that the document was a forgery. Uh, and she thought, you know, Shipman had murdered her mother, forging the will to benefit from her death. So it seems almost like it's weird that, but do you think he got to a point where killing wasn't enough? So he wanted to make some coin out of it? Or do you think he was getting ready to run? How could he not think it would raise suspicion, though, that? Do you think he did it because he wanted to get caught? I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of in between. Because I think the amount of people he killed before Kathleen Grundy, he must have known that it was only a matter of time before the police would come knocking. Totally, well, but he was... never took cash or anything from anywhere. No, and that's what and, I mean. That's what makes me... Unless he was just that crazy that he thought, oh, I'll just fake this will, or I'll get that money and disappear. And he yeah, really and thought he'd get away with it. But then maybe he wasn't aware that the daughter was a solicitor, so he thought, oh, it's an 81-year-old woman. No one will look into it too much. I'm a respected doctor. No one's going to suspect me, you know. Like, it, to me, it seems like how many elderly people leave all their savings and money to the doctor? Do you know what I mean? But maybe they did then. Maybe they do. I don't know. Not when they got family, really, sort of thing. It, it would have aroused suspicion, even to him, unless he was just totally gone by that point. Yeah, I mean, you've got to be a bit like for lack of a better term you've got to be a bit crazy to to murder 250 people but 
I just, yeah, it's weird that he suddenly made the change to to go with, try and get the money. Uh, so, so the daughter, uh, Kathleen Woodruff, she alerted the police, not Kathleen Woodruff, sorry. Um, Helen? Was Helen, was it? I do apologise. Um, Angela, sorry. Angela. Angela yeah. Woodruff. Um, yeah. She alerted the police because she believed that the will was a forgery. The uh, detective superintendent postals quickly came to the same conclusion. Um, and then her body was, Kathleen Grundy's body was exhumed. Post-mortem revealed that she had died of a morphine overdose uh, administered within three hours of her death precisely within the time frame where Shipman was due to visit her or was visiting her. Uh, Dr. Shipman's home was raided, yielding medical records, an odd collection of jewellery, which I would imagine was probably trophies of some kind, um, yeah. an, an old typewriter, typewriter which proved to be what she had typed the will on. Um, and yeah, so... It's funny, well, it's not funny, but like, for lack of a better term, I suppose, I've always wondered why why a serial offender, serial killer, whatever, serial thief, anyone who's in that, so serial like rapist or, what, you know, whatever crime it may be, why they keep trophies? Because it makes no sense to me, because you just implicate, when if you ever get caught, you, you've got no excuse for having all those trophies from all the victims. I, I think that's the power thing, isn't it? It's the, look, I've even kept all this and I'm still doing it. Mm. Or do you think it's the addiction side of it, where they, they have to have something to remind them of that feeling, that rush? Who knows what goes through a psychopath's head? Mm. Yeah, it's difficult. It'd be awesome if there was like a computer that could, you know, just show us what's going on in that head. Not what they say, what is actually going on. Yeah, just just to be able to and try and understand it a bit better. And I'm, you know, that's why we have profilers and people like that, isn't it? To shit, man. And... He won one the one round. You know, he didn't brag about it. it you know, it was. I don't understand. I... This is what this one is more baffling than most of them. And even after he was caught, he never admitted to it. So he never took credit for it. It wasn't like he thought, oh, I've been caught now, so I may as well get the fame and infamy for it. Because he didn't He didn't get that. You know, he did to a certain degree, but he's got the infamy. But because he didn't cooperate and he didn't admit it, he he didn't, you know, from his point of view, he didn't get that sort of... Um, Think so. Obviously, he had urged the families every time he killed someone. He urged the families to cremate their relatives, um, and they did so in a large number of the cases. Uh, stressing, he would stress to them there was no further need of investigation of their deaths because they died of natural causes, which obviously they hadn't. Um, and even in instances where the relatives had died of causes previously unknown to the families. In situations where they did raise questions, he would just provide computerized medical notes to corroborate, you know, the cause of death, which he was Ill saying. Health, things like that, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, he was, he was, he was, when he, he was, was questioned, with it. 
Yeah, and he was very clever in the way that when he was questioned, he had already prepared the evidence to sort of back up what he was saying. Um, so like in like 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 I just said there, someone when they did raise questions, he pr- produced these medical notes which he prepared to back up what he was saying. So then they would go ahead with the cremation. And then the evidence, of course, is destroyed. Um, the police later established the shipment would be would in most case most cases alter the these medical notes directly after killing the patient to ensure that his account matched the historical records. What uh, what he had sort of failed to grasp was that each alteration of the record would also be time stamped by a computer. Um, so what that did is whilst the police didn't have the physical evidence because the victims uh, were cremated, they did have the electronics timestamps on the computer to ascertain exactly when he had altered the records, um, which was a big part of why he was, or how he was prosecuted in the end. Um, yeah, it's just a very sad story. I'm just trying to find a bit about the sofa. It's just, like you say, he was a very calculated, calculated man. Um, he was obviously, you know, he was obviously organised. He wasn't, he wasn't like a, like he wasn't so addicted to killing that he, like, didn't he have... didn't want to get caught at first. Yeah. But, you know, like, um, like with, so, so with Dharma, when we discussed it, he he was at certain points. He'd have like a period where he couldn't not kill, so he was like desperately trying to sort of get people back to his apartment and stuff. And he was making mistakes, like drinking the wrong drink or whatever it may be. Whereas Harold Shipman seems very much to almost be in control all the time. He was killing people, but he was also being sure to have all the sort of things to 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 coincide with what he needed. So, you know, he wasn't just killing and thinking, I have to kill, I have to kill, I have to kill, and then messing up his sort of forged evidence because he was had that urge to kill so much. Yeah. Um so the police took a hell of a um, hell of a beating over Harold Shipman in the papers, because obviously there was various points where people came to them and sort of said, "Look, there's something not right here," and they never really right up until when Kathleen Grundy was murdered and her daughter, who was a solicitor, sort of got involved. It was only then that the police seemed to agree that there was something going on. But, you know, the coroner and the the undertaker, there was people who were concerned, uh, the other doctor, who were concerned by Dr. Shipman, took it to the police, and the police looked into it, and, no, it's all right, he's fine. He's just a nice (laughs) old man. 250 people. 
So it's crazy, mate. To me, it is bonkers. If, if I remember right, wasn't there a bit of a pro when they first looked into it that they put inexperienced officers on it or young officers or something? Yeah, you're just gonna have a look at that then because yeah, I'm I think sure some families tried blaming the police for it. So the last three of uh, Harold Shipman's victims would probably have lived, but for an incompetent police inquiry by a badly supervised inspector who was out of his depth. That's what uh, Dame Janet Smith, who was the chairman of the Shipman inquiry, said. Um, so, yeah, you are right with what you just said, that there was someone quite inexperienced at the helm and they made mistakes. So one of the two detectives blamed for a series of blunders had lied to cover up his own mistakes or many mistakes in this report. Uh, the officer who faced disciplinary action failed to make basic inquiries, such as discovering that Shipman had a criminal record for drug offences. Jesus Christ. That's like the, f the first, surely, if someone come to you, sorry, so you're the inspector, I'm the doctor, say, and I come to you and I say, doctor, one of the doctors at my surgery, I'm pretty sure there's something not right with him. I think he's killing people. They're all dying the same way. They're all sat the same way, blah, blah, blah. The first thing you would do is take my statement and then run his record, surely. Surely. I thought so, but I mean, back the then... The fucking thing you do. Back then, it may not have even been up on the computer. I know people who've had convictions that have never, ever shown. Bizarre. That is just... That is so maybe not so much the officer's error. That could be the police force's error, but he's the scapegoat. Oh, yeah, they love a scapegoat, don't they? Uh, so the report, the report sort of follows an invest. The report, um, this 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 report is a like an investigation of the investigation or the original police inquiry because the original police inquiry that cleared Shipman is that's what they did an inquiry into, I think, rather than his overall crimes because obviously he was convicted and they found him guilty in the end and they got him, but I think the the Harold Shipman inquiry was actually into the original uh, police inquiry where they cleared him. <coughs> Any wrongdoing and a separate report into the coroner system, which was found to be deeply flawed and in need of great reform. Shipman was convicted January 2000 of murder. He was only convicted of murdering 15 of his patients, but like we said, he's thought to have murdered at least 215, but the police think it's more likely to be 250, but probably more. Uh, his last three victims were Winifred Meller, Joan Melia, both 73, and Kathleen Grundy, 81, who we just discussed. Um, <clears throat> but in this report, they said that those three ladies could have been saved if they had got their shit together, basically, when they first had the, um, you know, when people first raised concerns. And the report also raises the possibility that Shipman could have been exposed as a killer as early as 1985, perhaps saving over 100 lives. But for the combined failings of a coroner, a pathologist, the doctors, 
and the police. They all missed vital clues pointing to the GP's guilt. Which again, that's, that's scary in itself. That he was able to go from 1985, or well, it wasn't even that, was it? It was earlier than that when he first started killing. But they're saying from 1985, he started to show signs. Well, there was clues there which could were missed. And you're not talking just the police there. You're talking coroners and pathologists who are looking at the bodies, the doctors who are working with him. You know, there's so many people to to miss what were clear signs that this man was a psychopath. He was, but I, I still can't work out too why. None of him makes sense at all. It's... um... Because like you say, you know, he didn't brag about it, so it wasn't the power thing. It was, what the hell was it? He, um, his, like, his mindset seems to be, his mindset seems to be organised in terms of the evidence and make, you know, giving himself sort of things that back up his story, but then also seem to be all over the place in terms of, he was killing people for so long in the same way. It's just, it's difficult to get like a read on him almost, if you get what I mean. Yes. <coughs> Nobody can explain <clears throat> him. No. You know, like your Dharmas, your Bundys, they were sexual crazy freaks. You know, there was, they had reason of why they were doing it. It don't make no sense to us, but they had reason. No, no, she yeah. Got nothing. Mm. So the Dame Janet, who did the report or headed the report, her most outspoken attack was against the officers from Greater Manchester Police, who they will come up in our conspiracy theory shows at some point, because. There's loads of instances of Greater Manchester Police being dodgy as fuck. But not to say that just, I'm not saying that there's anything dodgy in this in there in terms of them. It just seems to be that they were inept. Um, they didn't do their job properly, and people died because of it. I think that's a fair statement. It seems so. Um, and she just called it a series of botched inquiries. The first began in March 98, which was followed by a followed complaint by a fellow doctor um, who also was from Manchester, who was concerned at the high fatality rate among shipment's patients. Uh, De- Detective Inspector David Smith, who organised the investigation, did not fully understand the issues made no record of his inquiries and failed to check Shipman's past convictions, did not pursue the fact that post-mortem examinations could have been performed on two victims who were killed by Shipman shortly before his investigation began. Um, If the autopsies had taken place, it would have shown that the victims had been killed by morphine. So... It's crazy, it's, isn't it? This, that is, that's almost as frightening 
as fucking serial killer that the DI doesn't understand the magnitude of the issues presented by this GPU who's killing people. He hasn't made any record of the inquiries that he has made. So has he made any? Or has he just taken the complaint and then just like, you know, left it on his desk in a file? Yeah. Because how do you make no record of any inquiries into someone who is potentially, all right, they didn't know he killed 200 people then, but they were, the complaint was about the high rate, high fatality rate. So, you know, you're talking multiple victims. So how do you make no record of your inquiries? Yeah, you at least look into it a little bit because it's murder. Yeah, it's not just one. Like you say, not... if it was like, oh, this guy keeps breaking into houses, they might not look into it as yeah, much, yeah. you know. Murder's a whole, especially, like you say, the Murders. first thing you do is check his record. Yeah. But... Like I said, if he did check his record and there was nothing there, that could be the system. It's it's a tough but one. Then, but then the other thing is as well is um, like they didn't pursue the fact, or they didn't pursue post mortems for his, the two most recent victims at that time. Which, again, if you've got someone who's saying we're concerned about the high fatality rate of this doctor. Surely the first things you're going to do is like run his record, speak to people and then look at the last couple of people who've died. And if they're recent, (coughs) see how, see how they died, you know, see if there's anything to this complaint, not just let it go and not really do much with it. You know, this like people died because of that. And I'm sure that, I David Smith feels terrible about it, and you know I'm not trying to like hang him out to dry specifically, but it's damning. It is a damning report by this Dame Janet, as she, you know, she is slamming these guys. This isn't like the media slamming him. This is from an independent investigation into, you know, why wasn't Harold Chipman detected early earlier. Um, so she also says D.I. Smith was wrong to continue with his investigation, uh, pretending that he knew what he was doing when, as he admitted in evidence, he did not know where to go. Um, he was, you know, this officer was only 40, 46. So, I mean, that is quite young to, it's not, I think it is quite young in terms of like a, like a big investigation like this. It's not, it's, you know, it's not like, you know, it's not like that's a 20 year old. That's a lot of experience and years behind you, mate. Yeah. It's most likely got at least, at least 15 years on the job, at least more likely. He's probably so. got 20 odd. Um, you know, it's not like a 20 year old doing it. Is it or 20, you know, if he was like 22, 23, you could say, all right, yeah, maybe he's a bit out of his depth. He's too young to be able to deal with that. But, you know, he's in, in, in his words, he did not know where to go. Well, me and you just said straight away he should have checked his record, spoke to the people involved and looked at the latest people to die under his care. So there's three things he could have done straight away. So, you know, it wasn't that difficult. And I've got zero police experience. 
Yep, it's it's just a catalogue of errors, isn't it? It's just it is. it's a farce. And it's it's frustrating. Is that do you call it an error? Do you call it an error, or is it you know is it like dereliction of duty? Um, and I know it's difficult because people you know a lot of people died because of it, but if me and you can come up with like a few things that they should have done, which you'd expect a policeman to do, then surely the actual police force should be able to do that too. It's, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So the, the chief superintendent who was in charge, like above uh, Smith, retired three, uh, three months uh, before this report came out at the age of 50. Uh, he didn't cooperate with the inquiry and he wouldn't discuss the case in detail. Uh, he just allowed his subordinate, so the D.I. Smith, to decide to close the investigation. Uh, so basically, the, the big boss, if you like, refused to cooperate with the independent inquiry, uh, which is always good. And But also, he completely left it down to D.I. Smith to deal with and decide. So D.I. Smith decided to close the case, saying there was nothing to it. Whereas the slightly more experienced officer could have done, you know, could have checked his work maybe, or could have gone through it and come up with ways to move forward. I don't know. Seems simple, doesn't it? It's, it's crazy, mate. It's... How could they not check his records? Seriously. That's the first thing. Yeah, it's messed up, mate. But like I said, it's... There, there was real, no real like concrete evidence against him, was there? No, but there was... Things, it was like, there it's... in the background, but not... But like even this, this uh, Dame Janet says in the, the start of this inquiry, is like there was clues back in 1985... So by the time these guys got involved, when this doctor complained, you know, there was stuff there. The the latest victims, if they'd had an autopsy, they would have, he would have been caught. You know, it's as simple as that, really. Yeah. Um, but she, so Dame Janet was also critical of a doctor who had uh, consulted during the investigation. His name was Dr. Alan Banks. Um, he had been asked to review the case of the 15 of Shipman's dead patients, but he'd failed to notice anything suspicious, including the unusual fact that 14 victims were women. 14 victims were women. Um, so he had a, a bit of a flea in his ear from this independent inquiry also. It's just, like you say, mate, it is, it, like, it's almost like a catalogue of errors, um, like the NHS or the the local medical people, the police, the coroners, the, the pathologists, everyone involved in either the investigation or the day-to-day -day sort of what, you know, the running of the medical and the death when someone dies and what they do when, you know, everyone seems to have missed all these clues and signs that Harold Shipman was killing prolifically for years um, and yeah. I said you know I, was, I'm not 
It's not like there's one or two little clues. They were in abundance. But it's easy to look back with hindsight. Yeah, of course. In hindsight, it is easy to say. Two seconds, mate. You'll have to go to mum, mate, Aiden. Mum's by there, babe. She's out by the back door. She's just out by there. By your doors, love. I'm recording, babe. Sorry, mate. It's all right. My little one just woke up. Um, no, we're nearly done now, anyway. So I'll edit this lock bit out. I just want to wait for him to go on two sacks, mate. I just want to wait for my little boy to go before I start discussing it again. Hey, that's cool. Jazzy's my dog's taking him up. What's that, Aiden? What's the matter, babe? Smarter. What's the matter? What's the matter? Huh? You feel ill? What did you say? You don't know. You're a bad dream. You just wanted to get on camera, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Where's your mum? She's coming now, is she? Hmm? You don't know. Right, I've nearly finished now, so I, I'll finish off now. Come and see you, Reese. You can't see him. He hasn't got a camera. He can't get his cameras to work. He's still there. She's waiting for you. Waiting for you to go up to the bed. No. Okay. Can I finish? No need to hit me. Smarter. You don't even know what's the matter, do you? You're just super tired. You could jump into bed. Mum will be up now, won't she? Hmm? Say. So, could jump into bed then. Yeah? Go on, I'll be up now. I'll come and give you a kiss goodnight now when I finish. Go. I've got, I've got to finish, otherwise I won't be here all night. Okay, I'll come give you a kiss goodnight now. Just want to quickly finish off. Sorry, mate. Right. Sorry about that. Hello? Well, I think nobody's at all, man. Right. I've forgotten where it was now. Just, uh, okay, so let's leave that report now. Okay. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Okay. 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 Just trying to find my placement, sorry. Right, okay, let's go from trial and imprisonment. Uh, So Shipman's trial began at Preston Crown Court on the 5th of October 1999. Uh, He was charged with the murders of Marie West, Irene Turner, Lizzie Adams, Jean Lilly, Ivy Lomas, Muriel Grimshaw, Marie Quinn, Kathleen Wagstaff, Bianca Pomfret, 
Nora Nuttall, uh, Pamela Hillier, Maureen Ward, Winifred Meller, Joan Mellier, and Kathleen Grundy by lethal injections of diamorphine between all between 95 and 98. So that shows how you know he 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 like he, reading all those names out it's loads of people but that was just a tight that was three years tiny, of his killing tiny little tiny little window which they managed to get him on through their own incompetence basically um you know he was scary that they only got him, you know, 95 to 98. They, that's all they got him on. Um, his legal representatives tried to tried but failed to have the Grundy case thrown out because the where a clear motive was alleged. Uh, they, they also tried separately from the others where no motive was apparent. Um, so obviously the Grundy one was the one that really done him, I think. Um, so they tried to get that thrown out because he actually had a motive in that one, which was the will. Um, and when that failed, they then tried to get all the others thrown out by saying, oh, there's no reason he would have killed these people and failed. Um, on January the 31st, 2000, after six days of deliberation, which is that's mad in itself that the jury took six days to decide, because obviously with hindsight, We've looked at his crimes and his killings, and you're like, yeah, guilty. Easy to catch him. But, like, even the jury took six days. I know it's 15 counts of murder and one count of forgery, but six days. It doesn't seem like it, that it would take that long, does it? They've got to do each case and thing, though, haven't they? And... But even so, like there might have been like yeah. one or two where they thought maybe I don't know, and that's the you know most of them were probably just guilty, guilty, guilty. Yeah, and I, I guess it's different, isn't it? When like now we know all the evidence and we know what yes. he did. Maybe it's different, isn't it? When you're trying to decide just by looking at the evidence, whereas we've got the verdict and everything after. So I guess that's. But still seems long to me because of all the evidence against him. But but still, uh, ten days after his conviction, the General Medical Council they formally struck him off his register. Two years later, Home Secretary David Blunkett confirmed that the judge's whole life tariff, just months before British government ministers lost their set minimum terms, prisoners. So he was one of the last ones where the government could step in and say, no, life means life, which is frustrating. It's crazy, that was. Oh, mate, he does my nutter in the British justice system. Because, like, I just think... I just think... One pile of bullshit. If you kill someone, like, murder someone, like on purpose, you go out of your way to kill someone, then that's it. Life. No parole. Fuck that. Nothing. The only time I parole should be for like if you kill someone by accident. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. That's when you get parole. Or like, I don't know. It's just if you kill someone, if you go out of your way to kill someone on purpose, fuck that. 
should be hung, let alone. Yeah, first of all, there should be. But how many times has someone been acquitted 10 years down the line for first-degree murder? Not many, mate, is it, though? I know there has been cases of, like, people, um, you know, having their convictions overturned and stuff for murder and stuff like that. But there's not, like, you know, it's not like a yearly occurrence or something, is there? But, okay. So, like, finishing off, uh, Shipman consistently denied his guilt. He disputed the scientific evidence against him. He never made any public statements about his actions. Shipman's wife, Primrose, steadfastly maintained her husband's innocence even after his conviction. He is the only doctor in the history of British British medicine to be found guilty of murdering his patients. John Bodkin Adams was charged in 1957 with murdering a patient amid rumours he had killed dozens more over a 10-year period and possibly provided a role model for Shipman. However, he was acquitted. Uh, Historian Pamela Cullen has argued that because of Adam's acquittal, there was no impetus to examine the flaws in the British system until the Shipman case. Uh, Yeah, so Shipman hanged himself in his cell at Wakefield Prison, 6.20 on 13th of January 2004, on the eve of his 58th birthday and was pronounced dead at 8.10. A prison service statement indicated that Shipman had hanged himself from the window bars of his cell using bedsheets. Um, coward's way out, that is, for me. And I think, to me, to me, if he was innocent, as he claimed, then he would fight it to his dying breath with appeal after appeal and you would do everything you would never stop never stop um and he did yeah he never even gave the satisfaction of owning up to it to the no. families no i remember um, when all the headlines come out some papers went with the like the cowards way out one and slated and some were like joyous for it mm. but the families hated it didn't they yeah, it's just like some of the family said they felt cheated because his suicide meant they would never have the satisfaction of his confession, nor even, you know, answers like we've discussed a few times now over this podcast, like why he committed these crimes. Yeah. You know, David Blunkett himself noted that the celebration was tempting. You know, you wake up, you receive a call telling you Harold Sh- Har- Chipman's topped himself, and you think, you know, is it too early to open a bottle? And then you discover that everybody's very upset that he's done it. That was, you know, that was David Blunkett's statement about it. Yeah. I mean, because it didn't personally affect us. We're glad yeah, something that's off the earth. But I can totally respect and see why the families didn't want that. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, in, closure. You need you think, closure. Yeah, and you think, like, I think even if he never admits to it, if you could just try and find, if you could find somehow, find out why, and while he's still alive, you've always got that hope that one day he'll, you know, when he's been, when he gets to like 80 and he's been in prison, you know, he's coming to the end of his days, he might give it like a dip, deathbed confession or, you know, just something to just 
let help the families understand you know why they lost members of their family in such a horrific way but i mean at least i say at least it sounds stupid but i guess it's not that it's any comfort to the family members of his victims but at least the way they died was not um you know it wasn't intrusive or brutal or there was no sexual motive or sexual assault so like if you compare it to in terms of how they suffered to some of dharma's victims there's quite a big difference you know they were like sort of peacefully uh given dimorphine and would have fallen asleep so i mean at least they had that not that there's any comfort to the families but hmm. it's, yeah it's one of those things which there's no um you know there's no it's no happy ending to this podcast or this story it's uh, just a nasty killer who killed hundreds of women and men mostly elderly people and will never really know the the real reasons for it because you know like we've speculated on what we think maybe did it but it's just speculation and you know we're not like psychologists or profilers criminologists so we're not talking from like a professional opinion we're sort of just trying to guess from our own experiences with things like grief and mental health or whatever and try and work out and you know and looking at other serial killers trying to work out why he did what he did whether it was control or some other urge or addiction you know you can just can't tell you can't even come close to getting a reason as why that there's no in this case there's no methods of the madness no no there's nothing it's like it just comes to an end abruptly doesn't it and there's no um there's no explanation there's no comfort there's just the end um in 2005 it came to light that um he had stole jewelry from his victims um so in 1998 the police had seized over 10,000 pounds worth of jewelry which they had found in his garage and in March 2005, Primrose Shipman asked for its return. Which, do you know, I do wonder whether she is fully aware of what was going on. Because I can't see how she still defends him to this day and still says that, you know, he's not, he didn't do anything, he was innocent. And then she's got the cheek to ask for that jewellery which he had kept back. <sighs> Heavy stuff, that is. But you know with that, yeah. it's not jewellery like which was like in like a jewellery box in their bedroom so she could sort of claim that it was hers. It was in a garage, quite clearly, like trophies. Yeah. And I can't believe she's got the goal to like ask for it back you just couldn't admit it could they it's craziness so 
Dr. Dr. Harold Shipman's crimes shocked the UK and indeed the world, striking fear into the general public, particularly the local community. He was in a position of trust and not only abused it, but killed many people who deserved so much better. Anything else to add, mate? Nothing, mate. There is no explanation even remotely close to describing Harold Shipman. No, there is not. He truly was the doctor of death. He was. And, um, yeah, the only thing I would say is, obviously, our thoughts are completely with the, the families and the people affected by uh, Dr. Shipman's crimes. And I hope you all find some semblance of peace or closure that he would not give. Um, okay, guys, you can uh, keep up to date on any upcoming shows, series, and guests by following us on Twitter at AceCast underscore Nation or Facebook.com slash AceCast Nation. All our shows are available in video format at YouTube.com slash C slash Ace Podcast Nation or audio download at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Cat, Spotify, AceCast, and more. You can find Reese on Twitter at Shaw Celtic. Drop us a thumbs up on this video and share it with your friends. Tell your friends about all our podcasts and our series. Uh, we'll be back again soon with another conspiracy theory, another serial killer, and a lot more. Thank you for joining me, Reese. Always a pleasure, mate. And uh, thank you for watching and listening, everybody. And until next time, guys, we are out. Sports Social Podcast Network.